On this episode of the Nonprofit Ready Podcast, I speak with Steve Culbertson, CEO of Youth Service America, better known as YSA, and explore how an interest in volunteering and leadership shaped his commitment to run a global organization that motivates young people to find their voice, take action, and make a difference in their communities. You know, you come into an organization and you're impressed by its programs. And what I realized is that the bottom line programs are not the most important thing at the organization. It's really the people. Welcome to the Nonprofit Ready Podcast, conversations with accomplished professionals across the nonprofit sector about what they do, why they do it, and how they make change happen. I'm your host, Justin Waddell from NonprofitReady.org and the Cornerstone On Demand Foundation. And today, I'm pleased to be joined by Steve Culbertson, CEO of Youth Service America, or YSA, an international nonprofit that partners with thousands of organizations committed to increasing the quality and quantity of volunteer opportunities for young people to serve locally, nationally, and globally. Steve, thank you very much for joining us today on the Nonprofit Ready Podcast. Hey, Justin. How are you? Great. Steve. I'm really excited for this conversation. I personally love what you do. I'm a former AmeriCorps member. I serve Teach for America. So I'm eager to hear more about your story and how you've evolved into the role that you currently own today. So Steve, what were some of the early jobs that you took and what did you learn from those experiences that you found have translated well to your experience in the nonprofit sector? Well, like every kid, I had lots of jobs. You know, I, I ran rides at a carnival and I mowed lawns and did that kind of, uh, you know, fun stuff that every teenager does. But it really wasn't until I got involved with my college fraternity and particularly with their uh, foundation, which is now 90 years old uh, and was developed back in in the mid-20s. It was the first uh, college fraternity to create a foundation and then to fund it heavily uh, and to have it really focus on leadership development and uh, the support services that young people need as they go through college to be successful. So I became a staff member uh, of that foundation and I traveled the country working with young people doing leadership training and development. And then I was also the editor of the alumni magazine. So that gave me really strong writing and communications experiences at a very young age. As you went about those experiences, who were some of your early mentors that really helped to guide you uh, in a lot of those new avenues that you were trying? Well, there were like every kid, you know, you have people that you look up to. And, and I think starting with your parents, uh, both my mom and dad were active volunteers. They were active in, in the political sector. I mean, we were, you know, as kids, um, very, very uh, involved in political campaigns and because my parents were. And But my dad was also uh, a career service guy in as much as he's a West Point graduate and was a career uh, officer in the military. So, you know, he was probably not a, a what one would consider a warrior. Uh, his picture at West Point was a picture of him with binoculars uh, out bird watching. So he was a, a soft-spoken guy who maybe carried a big stick, if I can use that analogy. But um, he was president of the Rotary Club and he was constantly involved in, in our community in, in Western Massachusetts, and uh, we just were expected to be part of that. So, um, you know, that's the first guy I looked up to, and, and then, of course, found other mentors along the way uh, who helped me think differently about the world and uh, expand my horizons. And uh, and I think, you know, the, 
the fact that you've got uh, influential adults in your life, um, as you look back on it and you realize how important those are, uh, I've really sort of collected mentors down through the years. And, uh, and, and I would advise anybody who's in this work uh, to be constantly looking for those kinds of mentors. Now, could you tell us a little bit more about how you got involved in YSA? What was that journey to YSA from that initial uh, board service that you had with your fraternity at an early age? Yeah, so I served on the board when I was 19, and uh, and I think it was enormously influential to me because uh, I got to my first meeting, and there was the CEO of Merrill Lynch at the table and, you know, all of these executive types and, uh, and I was a 19-year-old kid, and, and, and I turned to one of the staff members who was there, and I said, uh, it was a, a particular vote was coming up at the board, and I said, are we allowed to vote? And they looked at me and they said, yeah, you are a full board member. And that was a big shock for me, because I didn't believe that young people had a vote. Um, and certainly young people under 21, you know, we didn't even have a vote in the, in the political process. So that whole sort of arena of, of being able to express yourself and to bring your ideas to the table was profoundly influential to me. You know, the larger role of young people in the world is, is one that's still on the table. I mean, I think it's one of the last great civil rights. Um, you know, when you think about that original decision-making table of the founding fathers, there were no uh, founding mothers at the table. And there were certainly uh, you know, African-Americans, there were no uh, Latinos, there were no gays and lesbians, there were no people with disabilities. Um, so if you think about that decision-making table today, it's a very rich one. And in the U.S., it's chaired by a, a, a man whose mother was from Kansas and his father was from Kenya. Um, so you can't get sort of much more diverse than that. So I think um, the, still the, the empty chairs at the table belong to young people. And I think I've recognized that uh, as my career has advanced, and it's driven me really towards this idea where I've made my life's work uh, about the engagement of young people. Great. And for those who aren't familiar yet with YSA, could you tell us a little bit more about the mission of the organization and the impact of YSA's work? Sure. Um, we were created by a, a couple of uh, Peace Corps alums back in the mid-'80s, um, who really wanted to, to um, expand the idea of national service. Uh, uh, this was pre-AmeriCorps days. And, um, but they really wanted to put their arms around all the amazing things that young people were doing in the, you know, in the world, uh, particularly the United States, and, uh, and to try to give it a, a, a common sense of um, vocabulary and a common sense of a movement. So our, our goal is really still, I guess, the same as it always was. It's just a, a bigger... A bigger platform, and, and that is to um, help young people find their voice, because all young people have a voice, but um, they often haven't given permission, you know, to, to use that voice, or they haven't been asked, and the ask is a, is a key piece, um, to use that voice, um, and then, of course, to, um, to make some impact with the action that they take once they, once they find that voice on a particular issue. And so we really ask young people to use their skills, um, their passions, um, whether it's playing lacrosse or climbing mountains or designing websites or uh, whatever, you know, turns them on and, and sparks their life. 
and to use that skill and that passion to, to find some kind of a, a big fire they want to put out or something that gets them fired up about the world and then really measure that impact to really discover, you know, how can they continue to, um, to impact that issue. So uh, it's, it's really about young people intervening, um, you know, that idea that nonprofits don't solve problems, churches don't solve problems, governments don't solve problems, corporations don't solve problems. It's only through human intervention uh, where problems get solved. And if you don't learn those skills of human intervention, you don't learn them at a young age, just like kicking a soccer ball or ice skating or um, learning how to code or learning math or learning to read, you'll never get those skills. So that's why we start young and we ask young people to intervene on the big problems facing the planet, knowing that um, they're going to come up with some pretty great solutions that adults are never going never to discover. Now, how do you differentiate your organization from other nonprofit organizations that are also focused on empowering and engaging youth? We really see ourselves as an umbrella organization, as a hub for the youth service movement. So there isn't a partner that you know, we're so competitive with that we don't work with. We see value in, in every single player on the stage. I think we are unique in that we're the only organization that actually activates and then funds and then trains and then recognizes young people. In other words, we, we call on them to serve. We put money behind them. Uh, we gave away almost three-quarters of a million dollars last year to, uh, to fund young people's projects with small micro-grants. We do an extraordinary amount of training and technical assistance. And, you know, we're excited that we're adopting the Cornerstone Foundation platform to do that in a much better and global way. And then, of course, the recognition piece uh, that we do, you know, as Napoleon said, give me enough ribbon and I'll conquer the world. So that recognition piece uh, is really critical to our work. But we recognize our closest competitors. Um, we recognize what their kids are doing. We try to lift that up and, and to be really uh, a global voice for the youth service movement. I love it. I'd now like to transition to uh, your professional role. You know, in 1996, you became the CEO and president of YSA, and I want to dive into your experience in that role since then. Now, let's start by just looking at what lessons do you wish you had known when you were first starting out as CEO? You know, you come into an organization and you're impressed by its programs. And what I realized is that the bottom line programs are not the most important thing at the organization. It's really the people. The best assets of this organization walk out the door every evening at 6 or 7 or 8 or 9 o'clock, depending on which staff member we're talking about. And that at the end of the day, that, that that's really where you want to make sure that you're investing in your people uh, ahead of your programs, because programs basically are useless unless you've got terrific people to deliver them. At the same time, I think that puts the onus on the CEO to say that my first priority, you know, waking up in the morning is, in fact, to meet payroll. Uh, and I, I say that with a smile on my face, but really I'm, I'm, I'm quite serious that meeting payroll and being able to fund that staff that delivers great programs, I think is really critical. And, and the role of money in nonprofits for as good-hearted as all of us are, for as much as I would just love to talk about young people as assets and resources all day long, if we don't have the money in the bank, 
to actually pay people and then deliver these programs, deliver the amazing grants that we do and, and the trainings and the technical assistance and provide you know the, the kinds of technology tools that we need or the outreach that we have to do. If we don't have money in the bank to do that, it's all useless. So um, the role of, of financing uh, nonprofit organizations, I think, is critical. And as you look at you know, the startups uh, in the Silicon Valley, let's say, uh, and you, you, know, you read about you know, 10 and $20 million investments, uh, you know, pools of capital that are created, you, know, you salivate when you hear about that kind of money. Because the, the frustrating thing, and I think I didn't realize this until later on, is that those of us in the NGO sector are really asked to do the toughest jobs, you know, health and education and human service and human rights and the environment. We're asked to do the really, really tough jobs, and we're asked to do it with really the fumes of the economy. We're asked to do it with the, you know, the really the dregs of, of what's left over. Um, and, and I think that's probably the most unfortunate part of it, but once you get you know, that into your head and understand that, then I think you could be much more effective uh, as a CEO um, because not that you realize your limitations, but you, real, you, know, you realize what you need to do and what you need to be spending your time on. And I think, you know, that in turn drives innovation. I think that in turn drives uh, rethinking on how you're delivering your programs every day. And I learned a lot from, from our corporate partners. You know, we work with Disney and we work with State Farm. Uh, we're two of their, um, you know, they're two of our biggest sponsors and we're uh, among their largest investments in the world. And I've watched those companies, you know, major Fortune 20 companies, uh, reinvent themselves constantly. And uh, you don't see it from the outside, you know, that Disney has reinvented itself, but they have. Uh, same with State Farm. And, you know, the CEO of State Farm says, you know, if I sold insurance the same way that my grandfather did, and he was also the CEO of State Farm, he said, I'd be out of business today. So I think part of the role of the CEO that I didn't realize was how do we continue to reinvent ourselves um, and not be satisfied with the way that we're delivering programs, and how could we be doing it better in a, not in a operational kind of a way, but more in a visionary kind of way on the horizon. So I think CEOs are, are really paid to be horizontal uh, and even beyond the horizon uh, thinkers. And that's our job. And if you're not comfortable with that, and you're not comfortable with being a change maker within your own organization, then I think you're not going to be a very comfortable CEO. I like your emphasis on the importance of vision and innovation. In everything that you've done at YSA, how do you curate that kind of vision? Is this something that you're going to your teams with, something that's just a beautiful epiphany that you have? Where does this come from, and how do you ultimately drive the implementation and change? I think the, the epiphanies come from um, being out and talking with people, of going to a lot of um, you know, events that may not seem all that valuable, but where you pick up a nugget or you see where other organizations are going or you talk to big thinkers about, um, about where the world's going and then you translate that into your particular uh, universe. And I, you know, we're, we're about to re-engineer and, and re-define uh, what YSA is as an organization. Uh, we're going through a, a huge change right now. 
And I think it's 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 oftentimes a uh, a combination of several things. Uh, one, it's fate. Uh, you know, there are externalities that you simply cannot control. That you know, you've got to have your your ear, you know, close to the ground to pick up on. Um, sometimes you don't have to have it too close to the ground. For example, after 9/11, um, we did a big re-engineering about who we were and what we were trying to do. Um, but uh, you know, we have traditionally, for example, never ever been an organization that is tied to a single agenda of, of what um, kids are working on. Um, we've certainly had funders come in and, and certainly bring things to the table like road safety or the environment or hunger and homelessness, childhood obesity. But those have been unique partnerships with corporations where that's their, their big issue. In general, we have been agnostic uh, on what the issues are because we know that for example, uh, in a community, um, if your grandmother died of breast cancer and I'm coming in and trying to get you to be thinking about, um, you know, dirty water, um, it's going to be really hard to connect you, um, you know, with my issue and, and your passion. So, um, you know, we've, we've really let the market decide um, what the issues are in a community and we've tried to be very much of an open source hub, you know, for the youth service movement. Um, we're actually going to change that. Um, we are going to actually adopt uh, the framework of the Sustainable Development Goals, um, which are coming out at the United Nations um, this fall in 2015. And they will be the first time in history the entire planet will have a development agenda of these 17 goals. And every single country on the planet, all the member nations of the UN uh, are going to vote uh, to measure them in their own countries and then to roll up those measurements into uh, a global report card. And we're going to connect YSA's work with those 17 goals. We're already doing so much of it already uh, in health and education and human service, human rights, the environment. Uh, but we're going to literally tie um, all the work that we're doing and that young people are doing uh, to those goals. and. Um, and really develop a youth number that's going to come out of that. Um, but I think this framework is going to really focus our work um, uh, much more in the in the coming 15 years. And I think it's going to breathe uh, a whole new set of energetic um, ideas into the organization. And it's going to open up new passageways and new partnerships that we never dreamed possible uh, 15 years ago. So lots of exciting uh, stuff going on here. And you know, when you talk about innovation and, and creativity, you know, I kind of had this epiphany uh, that this is what we should do. And um, uh, in terms of bringing it back to the staff, uh, well, it turns out when I brought it to our vice president of programs as an idea, she said, you're not going to believe this, but uh, uh, our director of programs just walked in with the exact same idea. Uh, and we had been at the same meeting uh, where we both kind of came to this conclusion, but I think we've both been working in this space for a long time, and, and so it's a natural thing for us to do. You've been part of a lot of these evolutions. What does effective change management for an organization really look like for you, especially as the CEO, uh, working with directors and frontline employees uh, to make sure that those changes are implemented, implemented effectively and efficiently? Well, I, th I think it's really important to assure the staff um, that what you're doing is is not going to be um, 
dramatically different than what they signed up for. People love progress. They hate change, uh, but they love progress. So I think framing it as, you know, uh, as this will really help the organization progress is really the role of the CEO. Um, but it's not to simply dump that in the laps of the staff. It's to really um, uh, lay out a, you know, very strategic transition to how we're going to get there and, and why you believe and why, you know, you really hope they will believe uh, that this is going to um, improve their work and to make them more powerful as staff members and certainly um, improve the, the overall impact of the organization. Now, I really like your focus on improving the impact of the staff and really supporting that talent. Could you tell me a little bit more about what you look for when hiring for the YSA team? Like what qualities have you seen in really successful employees within your organization? You know, I was, I was talking about, a, about this with a colleague the other day who runs a consulting firm, and he said, Steve, I won't hire anybody today who doesn't have national service experience, who hasn't been in AmeriCorps, who hasn't been in Peace Corps, um, who hasn't been in the military, um, who doesn't have a strong service background. And I thought, you know, that's really brilliant um, because, one, it's a, today, you know, it's a very large pool out there um, because, uh, you know, young people are volunteering at record rates today more than any generation in history. So we have a, a big pool to choose from. But, yeah, I think people who've been in the arena uh, are the ones who are most successful here. Um, and uh, we have lots of AmeriCorps alums. We have lots of Peace Corps alums. We have people who've served in the military. We've had people who, you know, were student council presidents and people who've been deeply involved in, in, um, in volunteering experiences of their own and, and, and run and manage that. And as, as our vice president of, of uh, programs likes to tell uh, the staff, um, she said, you know, the one thing you probably don't know about me is that I know how to drive a forklift. Um, and, you know, most uh, women with a Harvard education don't make that claim. Uh, but she's been in the arena, and uh, she learned to drive a forklift uh, when she ran a, a big volunteer effort for many years. Um, so I think people who've, uh, you know, who, who understand that idea, who have made their own interventions uh, in the world, tend to uh, make the best staff members at YSA. So Justin, I think you ought to send us your resume. Don't tell my boss. <laughs> If she's not Plus, listening. Right now. She might be listening to this, but uh, no, I love the fact that you did AmeriCorps and were Teach for America. I think that's have huge respect for you for doing that. No, no, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, you know, a lot of this is is very inspirational, and you know, I, I keep going back to the fact that you've been in your role for you know a decent amount of time now. For millennials such as myself, you know, you look at that and you say, you know, I could never imagine being in a role uh, for more than more than two years, let alone 20. Could you tell me about what keeps you inspired in that role? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's great. I, uh, the, one of my mentors was a guy named John Gardner. And uh, if, if your listeners don't know who he is, um, they should definitely Google him. Um, and he was one of the great social entrepreneurs of the 1960s. By the way, there are two John Gardners out there. Another one is a famous author. And I also commend his work to you, uh, uh, but anyway, John Gardner, the, the great social entrepreneur, uh, used to say, you know, the best source of adults that I know are kids. And I can't think of anything more important to be doing than working with young people. Because at the end of the day, when the world has changed, uh, it's always been because of young people. 
you know, when, when you think about it, um, it's no coincidence that uh, UPS and Microsoft and uh, Hewlett and Packard and Bristol and Myers, and, uh, Dell and Facebook, you know, were all started by teenagers. Um, and, you know, UPS, those brown trucks that you see going by, started by two teenagers on a, uh, on a bicycle with a $100 loan from their parents. Uh, and that became one of the, you know, the biggest package delivery companies in the world. Um, and so I, I think that that kind of concept of, um, of the energy that young people bring to the table, um, that bring to society, uh, you know, that never gets old. Now, amidst all this inspiration and all this motivation, I'm sure that you faced significant hurdles uh, in your role. Could you tell me about some of the challenges that you've overcome throughout your career, be it a broken copier or something more systemic? Well, you know, if, if you told me when I started this job that um, my biggest uh, obstacle was going to be adults, I would have told you you were crazy. Um, you know, I thought it was going to be apathetic youth, um, you know, who just weren't willing to shut off their computers or stop kicking the ball or stop, you know, take off their headphones and actually contribute to the world. Um, young people are not my problem. Uh, it's, it's really adults who, you know, one, are not willing to share the power. Uh, service is power, let's face it. You know, people who fix things, people who solve problems are powerful people. And, you know, the history of the world is a history of power. And um, the people who have it uh, have um, pretty much, if you go through the history books, they've been unwilling to share it unless uh, they've been forced to. And I've certainly had lots and lots and lots of obstacles, um, you know, in the organization and in running an organization. Uh, I've had theft. I, you know, I had a CFO that was stealing money from us. Uh, I had board members, you know, that, that haven't participated um, you know, I've had issues, uh, you know, of all kinds, you know, when you, when you're dealing with HR and, and human resources, you know, or, or personnel issues, um, you know, when, when you have people that work for you, you get all of their problems and they bring those to the office. And, uh, you know, the world is, is, is full of all kinds of squirrely people. And we've had a few come through here on our staff, um, and, um, partners that you've worked with that haven't come through, you know, so obstacles are, are, are a daily, you know, uh, thing that we're constantly dodging and, and we try to plan for obstacles. Um, we try to imagine what, what those might be in the future and uh, hopefully we can mitigate them fairly quickly. But yeah, this, uh, this work is not without uh, lots of pitfalls and, and lots of disappointments, uh, but isn't that really what life is all about as well? Very poetic. Now, you mentioned apathetic board members, and I'd like to dig into that a little bit deeper. Could you walk me through how you manage your relationship with your board uh, to make sure it's as effective and impactful as possible? Sure. You know, I, I think that the, the key thing about um, a great board is that when you have your meetings, it's really a board meeting. It's not a meeting of the staff telling the board how great they are. And I think we made that mistake for a long time, is that we thought our job was to gather a bunch of very important people into the room and tell them the wonderful things that we were doing. And again, that's exactly what we do to kids, you know, when we um, serve them, uh, is that it's a very passive relationship. So I think what, what 
we've discovered is the better way to um, uh, to engage the board and to keep them active in what we're doing is first of all, you know, meet them where they are. What you know, what assets do they think they can bring? What industry do they have uh, connections to? Where do they know people? You know, either geographically or or institutionally or in terms of, of various industries. Um, but I think um, what what we try to do now to to, um, uh, to work with our board is to bring two or three big problems that we're facing and ask our board to wrestle with those issues, to really bring their best thinking to the challenges that we face as a staff. Do we still report to them? Sure. Yeah, we tell them how great we are and we tell them how many kids we engaged and what countries we're in and cool projects and great stories. You got to have some of that stuff. But you also have to engage the board to be, you know, thinkers and actors themselves. And the only way to do that is to just be really honest with them. And I learned this from a, you know, from a, one of my board members who also does business consulting. And he said, you know, when you go to a business board meeting, a big corporate board meeting, uh, they don't sit there and, you know, learn how many French fries were sold uh, in the last quarter. They really sit and wrestle with big problems facing the corporation. And uh, so we've really adopted, uh, I think, successfully. We think we can keep getting better at it, but uh, ways in which we can engage our board in authentic uh, you know, discussions that really help us uh, do better work based on, on, on their suggestions. I'd like to wrap up with just a final thoughts on people who are beginning to enter the nonprofit sector. Some of our learners are transitioning from the corporate world. Some are coming from college. Some may still be in high school and are eager to get involved. What advice can you give to those who are considering a career path in this area? Well, it's funny. I was I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who is feeling very burned out in the corporate world, and he said, you know, I'm really thinking about transitioning to the nonprofit world, you know, where things are much calmer. And I kind of almost spit out my soup. <laughs> I said, I said, if, if, if you think that, um, you know, the, the nonprofit world is is without all of the you know, the excitement and, and, and the pitfalls of the corporate world, you know, you're sadly mistaken. So I, I don't want anybody to think that they're going to come into the, the nonprofit world and, and, you know, kick up their heels and, and have a short work day. Um, you know, the, again, the, the, the work that we do, you know, whether it's hunger or homelessness or HIV or girls' rights or Ebola or, you know, the water scarcity, I mean, it, you could just go on and on. Um, these are all the, the big issues, and uh, they're the ones that uh, YSA and, and our colleagues uh, in the NGO sectors around the world are, are all uh, wrestling with every single day. Steve, you are talking my language. I love it. Um, I always like to provide our guests with a final opportunity uh, to say anything that might be on their mind, be it uh, something from your personal or professional experience that you think would be relevant to this conversation. Is there anything we've missed that you feel would be worthwhile to share? Well, I would, I would um, end perhaps with a story that, that, that I often end my um, quote-unquote TED Talk with, uh, the talks that I give to young people, um, to groups, adults. Sometimes they let me talk to adults, but usually I talk to young people. Um, and it's, it's a story about one of my board members and one of my mentors, Harris Wofford, who was King's lawyer back in the 50s, and he was John F. Kennedy's special assistant to the president, helped start the Peace Corps, 
uh, work with Sergeant Shriver to really launch, I think, the modern service movement that you and I have both benefited from, been part of. And he was doing a, a, a youth service project in Philadelphia, and there was a young African-American boy with him, and they were both hammering nails, and he said, you know, for every nail I put in, he said, this young man uh, put in 10. And uh, I looked over at him, and I said, you know, you're, you're making me look bad. And the young man looked, looked up at the senator, and he said, well, he senator, he said, you know, I'm a little bit younger. And, um, he said, uh, I'm just a little bit faster. And he said, yeah, but tell me the rest of your story. And, and so the boy said, well, he said, you know, I've been in a gang all my life. And he said, I thought this youth service work uh, might be a different kind of a gang. And at the end of the day, I might not get shot. And Senator Wofford looked at him and thought, wow, you know, that's quite a story. But the young man didn't stop there. Uh, he actually went on and he said, you know, Senator, all my life, he said, people have been coming into the projects. And he lived in North Philadelphia, you know, one of the toughest places I've ever been in my life. And you can't believe it's actually part of the United States of America. But this is where this young man lived. And he said, you know, people have been coming into the projects all my life, he said, to do good against me. And imagine the image of that, do good against me. You know, oh, did they have another program where they were going to fix him? And he said, you know, I really looked at this program and, and I liked it because it's the first time that anybody has ever asked me to do good. And I think that's really my message to people in the nonprofit world is that it can't be just about us doing the good. We've got to figure out how do we get other people to do good? You know, how do we instigate, motivate, activate, uh, you know, armies of young people? Because we can't do it on our own. Uh, you know, to own our passions, to own our, uh, our sensitivity, you know, to the, to the power of, of young people doing good, whatever it is, again, um, you know, there are going to be lots of issues that people are going to gravitate towards. So I would just say to people, uh, it can't just be about you being a do-gooder. There's nothing wrong with being a do-gooder. But don't be a do-gooder alone. Go out and, and get other people to do good as well. Fantastic. For listeners looking to learn more about YSA and how they can get involved, where should they go? Well, start with our website. It's easy to remember, ysa.org. And you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. We're all over social media. Sign up for our weekly newsletter. Uh, it's not just about us. It's about the entire youth service field. So we like to, to add the content of our partners into that. We think that we bring a value proposition. And over 40,000 people receive that every week. So uh, other people seem to think it's a pretty good thing as well. But that's a good way to start and to plug in. We're always looking for community partners around the world. Uh, that's an easy way to plug into our power grip. And yeah, we'd love to work with anybody, uh, young or old, who believes in the power of young people to change the world. Wonderful. Once again, everyone, Steve Colbertson, CEO of Youth Service America, better known as YSA. Steve, thank you so much. Thank you, Justin. On the next episode of the Nonprofit Ready Podcast, I'll be joined by Yoon Choi, Vice President of Spark, a national nonprofit that partners with schools and workplaces to match 7th and 8th graders with mentors working in career fields aligned with the students' strengths and interests. You will not want to miss it. Be sure to subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And while you're there, be sure to leave a rating and review. If you haven't done so already, be sure to sign up for nonprofitready.org. 
which includes all of our previous podcast interviews, some amazing webinars, and more than 300 online learning resources covering the most crucial job functions in the nonprofit sector, all 100% free. The Nonprofit Ready Podcast is a production of the Cornerstone On Demand Foundation. I want to thank our executive producer, Alec Green, our editorial director, Jeanette Lamb, our sound producer, Trung Ngo, and most importantly, you, for listening and helping to build the Nonprofit Ready community. Learn more about the capacity building services of the Cornerstone On Demand Foundation at csodfoundation.org. Thank you and have a fantastic day.